Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. While visiting a good friend in the Dallas metro area, I had the opportunity to speak with two avid birders and learn about two birds found in Texas. I hope you'll enjoy this episode and the next one as the podcast makes a quick stop in Texas. Between the calls of a vocal northern cardinal, I apologize for the heavy wind noise and airplanes flying overhead from DFW. Today my guest is Rita Loki, a native Texan who retired from corporate America to become a Texas master naturalist, which helped her meet other like-minded people and led her to her current position as an environmental educator at the Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area, also known as LELA. Over the last five years in this role, she has worked with kids as young as pre-kindergartners and as old as high school seniors, teaching them about birds, invertebrates, and plant life. It's good to have you on today. Thank you. Since you spend the majority of your time here at Leela, can you tell us a little bit about what goes on here? Yes, Leela, uh, Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area, is a piece of property that's over 2,000 acres. Mm-hmm. And it's primarily uh, dedicated to education, restoration, and conservation. Uh, there are three entities that actually support Leela. The land itself is owned by the Army Corps of Engineers mm-hmm. because it's federal property due to the fact that it dams Lake Louisville up, and the dam is located on the property. Um, The second one is the University of North Texas. Mm -hmm. They do a tremendous amount of research here. Mm -hmm. And then the third is the city of Louisville. Okay. Leela is home to over 350 different types of birds, including migrating species. So we have a lot of bird life here at Leela. Quite a bit to see. Yes. Another thing that we do at Leela is we have a banding station where we have um, certified banders actually banding birds that fly through during migration. It's really interesting to observe. Uh, they put up these mist nets, and then we go back to the mist nets and see what birds we've captured. They're carefully removed from the nets and placed in small bags and taken back to the banding station. Well, they're identified first, and then we try to determine uh, sex. Especially in the spring migration, you look for a brood patch sometimes just Mm -hmm. to see if it's a female. Uh, And then another difficulty is trying to identify the age of the bird. Hmm. And um, that's usually done by looking at the different feathers of the bird. Okay. It helps age them. And then they weigh them, and then they find the band that fits their their size and place the band on it. Hmm. Um, the exciting thing is to see the birds up close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to actually, you know, see a cardinal up close and see the powerful beak that they have, that's sort of a humorous thing. They always get new banders to take the cardinals out because they can pinch pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. But anyway, it's a very interesting thing to observe. Uh, I want to touch on something you mentioned just a few seconds ago about the feathers. Are you looking at coloring, length, or what are you looking at to indicate age? You are looking at the length of the feathers and the type of feathers. Hmm. Well, the color, I guess, some feathers are, as they get older, they get a little bit more ragged looking. Hmm. You know, But um, I think you're basically looking at the type of feathers and the length of the feathers. Okay. 
And again, when we uh, talk about banding, why does Leela band birds? Well, banding of birds is, again, um, you know, so important so that we understand uh, which birds are coming through, mm-hmm. the time of migration, mm-hmm. and really it helps uh, identify bird life length, you know, mm. because uh, we had recaptured, I cannot recall the type of bird, but um, we recapture sometimes birds. And one time we recaptured a bird that we had banded at Leela seven years ago. Wow. And so you think about that, seven years of migration through Leela. Yeah. So it, it helps us understand which birds are being attracted to Leela, mm. which birds are finding shelter and food here. Mm. So you're able to obtain more detailed information than you would at uh, your average bird count. That's true. That's true. All right. When you think about birding, when did you first take an interest in birding? I think it was probably about 1974. I had an opportunity to uh, go to Australia, and I lived there for about a year and a half, and I heard this call it was like a laughing call hmm. and i was curious about it it turned out to be a, a native australian bird called the kookaburra okay. which is a kingfisher that lived on the murray river oh. and that just sort of you know got me interested in observing birds of course when you're in a new country you're excited about everything and, <laughs> yes. and you want to find out about everything when you think back further what would you say is your earliest memory of a bird you know, that's sort of difficult. I think as a child, I just, you know, took birds for granted, mm-hmm. uh, like trees and grass and flowers and <laughs> all those things. And maybe that's uh, how a lot of people, even in their adult life, feel. Mm-hmm. But now that, I, you know, since I discovered it, it's just like a whole new world. Yeah. Now you see it everywhere, huh? Yeah. Spending so much time at Lila, you encounter birds every day you come to work. What is a particularly memorable encounter with a bird that you've had? Well, interestingly enough, Chris, it was actually in my own backyard. Hmm. Um, I feed the birds in my backyard. I put out suet. I put out seed. But I also throw out a lot of unsalted, unroasted peanuts Hmm. for the blue jays and for the crows. Um, I back up to some core property, and we have a lot of crows. But there was one particular crow that came to the yard. He hopped instead of walked on the ground. And I noticed that his left leg was injured. Mm. And he would come back, you know, periodically, probably for about two or three months. Okay. And I'd always look for him. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he he stopped coming. I don't know if he the leg healed. Sure. But anyway, it just it made me realize how how well strong they are and how they fight for survival. Mm. Even with that uh, shortcoming of the leg, Mm -hmm. still getting out there, they still have to eat, they still have to survive, right? Right. I know you're not an aggressive lister, but is there a bird that you would like to see next? Yes, it is. There is, and it's here at Leela. One of my birding friends pointed out the, the the call the other day to me, and it's a yellow-billed cuckoo. Okay. And um, and I really would like to see one. Hmm. Do you have an idea of the general area where it's been yes, heard? It's not far from here because um, they like a wooded areas. One of their favorite foods are tent caterpillars. Okay. Those caterpillars that build those webs in the hmm. trees. I know that they're here. And uh, it's just trying to find one because they're very secretive and a bit shy. Yes. 
Well, I hope you can find them. Yeah, I've done some research. I guess one of the things I looked at was, uh, you know, studying their call. Mm -hmm. And because I probably will hear him or her before I see them. Uh, The second thing is their food source, because that's always a good place to look for the bird. Yes. When you go birding, aside from binoculars, bird guides, or apps, what is something you never leave home without? Here at Leela, I always make sure, of course, water is a necessity. Yes. But um, the second thing is bug spray, because here in Texas, we have uh, a lot of mosquitoes, Mm -hmm. and we have these things called chiggers um, that I detest, Mm -hmm. and um, their bites can last an itch for days. Oh. So, good idea to bring the bug spray, huh? (laughs) Yes. In your position here... You interact with new birders frequently, but what is a piece of advice you would share with our listeners who may be new to birding? Um, I guess the first thing is to just relax and, and, you know, don't be fearful of not being able to identify a bird. Uh, We all start there. Um, And it's always a good idea to go on as many bird walks as you possibly can with experienced birders. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably my best piece of advice. Um, And then, you know, just position yourself somewhere in your backyard and just sit and observe. Mm. Just spending that time mm-hmm. looking at birds. One of the things that I've noticed a few of my guests talk about in the last few episodes has been the planting of native plants. Uh, for those that have a backyard or an area where they could place a potted plant, I've learned that there's a value to planting a native plant in your home. Do you have any native plants in your yard? Yes, I do. Um, I have um, some salvia that the hummingbirds like and then one of my favorite native plants is called a turk's cap okay and uh the hummingbirds really love it also Mm. can you tell us a little bit about that turk's cap yeah it's a a a woody plant lots of green leaves on it and then the flowers are small uh, and they're a bright red which definitely attracts the hummingbirds Mm -hmm. and um, they look like a cap or a fez cap and um and it's really easy to grow. Hmm. Matter of fact, I've even propagated it by uh, collecting the seeds, which are edible. Oh. <laughs> they look like little berries. Uh, I planted seeds, and they all came up. But the other thing I found out, which is even easier, is a cutting and water will root. Okay. So it's very, very easy. Hmm. So that's a great way for someone to start out in their backyard with a native plant. Right. With the Turk's cap. Yes. And if you're really interested in it, there's a lot of native plant organizations all across the United States. To do a little more research on Mm -hmm. that. All right. Uh, Now let's move to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. For this episode, Rita has chosen the scissor-tailed flycatcher. Driving around Louisville, I was shocked the first time I saw one, what I now know to be a scissor-tailed flycatcher. I distinctly remember the note I recorded to refer to later when I could get to my Texas bird book. And that was small, light gray-chested bird, similar in size to a finch with a really long tail. I've seen these birds on some power lines and other areas. Where can these birds usually be seen? Well, they're usually seen in open country. And I live um, outside of Flower Mound, which probably doesn't mean much to anyone but it's a small area Mm. and i even see them along just county roads 
They like to perch on power lines, and they also like to perch on fences. Hmm. But you're right, they're a beautiful bird. That's what caught my eye immediately, and they have this long forked tail, just captivating. Yeah, that tail, I know in Arizona we have a few different flycatchers. None have tails like that. Do you know if there's any significance of that tail? Yes, um, I was reading about it. It seems that they perch and they observe looking for insects. That's their primary diet. Mm -hmm. And when they see a grasshopper or a wasp or a bee or a robber fly, they will suddenly fly out and they catch it in midair. Hmm. They're very uh, acrobatic in the air. Yeah. And <clears throat> the long, excuse me, the long tail actually allows them to do some stalling techniques and make quick turns to catch hmm. the insect. To be able to catch their much smaller, faster prey. Yes, yes. Another thing I noticed about flycatchers in general, the ones I've interacted with, the one I have the most experience with is the vermilion flycatcher. And when I observe that bird, I always see them alone. But I know that's not necessarily the case with these scissor-tailed. That's true. You'll often see um, a pair of them on a, perched on a wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting. They're one of the few flycatchers that migrate during the day. And so in the fall, often you will see maybe 10, 20 of them uh, on a fence or a line just resting before they continue their journey. Hmm. And that is unusual because it's not very often that we see more than a pair of flycatchers of any uh, species of flycatcher. Right. Uh, You talked about migration. Can you tell us a little bit about their migration path? Yes. They're found mostly, you know, in the summer here. They're following the insects, of course. So they're here in Texas and Oklahoma during the the summer, but they migrate in the fall to South America. Okay. And so they they spend the winter down there where it's more tropical. Okay. You mentioned the bird's tail. And I know that tail is distinct compared to other flycatchers or other birds for that matter. Can you talk a little bit about tails on birds? Yes, it's an excellent way for people to identify birds. It's one of the things I look at besides the beak. You know, so many times we aren't able to see the bird. We see the silhouette of the bird. Mm -hmm. And so beaks, crowns, and tails are something that you can zoom in on and sort of make a mental note so that when you go back to your bird book, you can look for those characteristics. Sure. When you think of these tail characteristics, uh, what is maybe a helpful way, if I'm a newer birder and I've just, like you said, witnessed the silhouette of a bird, what are some things I might keep in mind to make better mental notes of tails to differentiate, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for example, we have the Carolina wren. Mm-hmm. And the Carolina wren is very uh, a small bird, um, and but the, it carries its tail straight up. Mm. So, you know, if I see that, you know, that's an indicator that maybe it's a Carolina wren. Mm-hmm. Eastern Phoebe, mm-hmm. which we have here, mm-hmm. when they're perching, they will dip their tail. Okay. They'll just sort of dip it, dip it, dip it. Mm. 
And so you you can recognize a Phoebe. So what they do with that tail and the shape of that tail and mm-hmm. the length of the tail are probably the most important items. Okay. So that's a good point, looking at that angle at which the tail is positioned. How does it move? And then one of the things I've found helpful is I try to make a mental note of the size of the tail in relation to the body. That's because a good one, too. Because it can be difficult to sit there and think, is that a three-inch tail, a four-inch tail? That's hard to do. But if I can say, well, the tail's as long as the bird, or it's half the size of the bird. Right. Yeah, that can make it easier to identify. So if you happen to catch a good look at the scissor-tailed fight catcher, what will you see? Well, you'll see a stunning bird with that long tail, and it's a slender bird. The colors are a very pale gray on its head and its back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has the very long black and white tail that scissors when it flies, Mm. cuts back and forth. And then it's got this bright pink. Well, at first it starts out peach on its breast. Mm. And then underneath its wings, it has this bright pink that's just stunning. And for the longest time, I didn't see that until Mm. I saw a picture of it. And I was shocked. It Mm. was so bright and vibrant. So they're just, they're just gorgeous. I know that it's probably hard to see that because you would have to see them in flight. I imagine that has something to do with their mating as far as attracting a mate. It seems like something so attractive under their wing, they would want the right one to see it. That's right. That's right. And I also found out that that the tail uh, of the male is longer than the female, and that too is a mating attraction. Okay. Speaking of mating, how do they uh, nest? They nest, and of course, I've never seen a nest. I, you know, I, I don't know if it. I think it's because they they build them pretty high up in the trees. Okay. But they're a cup-like nest, and they usually have two to six eggs. Okay. And the eggs are a creamy white with splotches of brown and sometimes even a splotch of pink or lavender. Huh. It's supposed to be beautiful eggs. Yeah, sounds like it. Before we go, yesterday we talked a little bit about your passion for bringing people into birding. More specifically, can you tell us how you're reaching young birders? Well, yes. With my job at Leela, I am often teaching children about birding. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I teach them about birding, I'm teaching them about the physical attributes of birds. Sure. So we talk about the beaks. We talk about the wings, the hollow bones, all of that type of thing. And then once they sort of have all that down, we take them out and we give them a pair of binoculars to use. Okay. And once they have been able to see their first bird, they're pretty much hooked. Mm. I mean, they're excited. They want to go out and see more birds. I'm sure. Yeah. And after we get past that, you know, then we can start to talk about the importance of birds to us and the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I want to teach them that birds are a real good bioindicator of our whole environment. Mm. Um, what happens to birds, you know, is important to us. Yes. Uh, and that they're part of our ecosystem. So many times I find that these children, you know, they didn't live through DDT Mm. when we polluted so many of the birds, you know, with that pesticide uh, and almost lost the bald eagle and several other birds because their shells were so fragile after ingesting insects that had been poisoned by the DDT. So, um, you know, you you get them to a point where they not only understand the beauty of the bird, but the importance of the birds in our healthy environment 
uh, mm-hmm. in the ecosystem. So that we can continue to have these beautiful birds around. Yes, yes. Earlier, you touched on uh, how you would introduce binoculars to the children. When I think of that, for somebody who is listening, who has just picked up their first pair of binoculars, well, those of us who have been birding for a while, it comes quite naturally. What would you say to them on that very first time they're picking the uh, binoculars up and putting them to their eyes? Well, I guess, you know, the, the, the way we approach it with the children is that as soon as they have the, the binoculars around their neck, we tell them that it's important to adjust the binoculars. You know, we show them how they can adjust to match the width of their between their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really important. And then the second thing is to be able to only see out one circle. You know, mm. you're not looking at two circles. You're look, you're getting adjusted to look just one. And then the third is to the clarity of the, the vision sure. on the top. But um, it takes a while, you know, to, to get used to binoculars. And that's why it's so important if you are serious, a serious birder that you have your own very own binoculars. You know, yeah. you're used to adjusting them. So you're comfortable using them and focusing, mm-hmm. especially if you're looking at birds at different distances. I know that you have a desire to reach out to birders of all ages, and there's something that you're a part of that I think might appeal to some of our adult listeners. Your involvement in Cornell's project Feeder Watch. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, Chris, I'd be glad to. It's a citizen scientist project that I don't know how long it's been going on, but I personally have been involved in it for at least five years. Hmm. All you need is a backyard, put up a bird feeder, count the birds, and report the birds. And it's all done online, you know, the reporting of it. Okay. And it's a way to help Cornell University monitor bird populations mm-hmm. by type. Okay. Um, it's a way for them to monitor bird migration or bird movements. Mm-hmm. So it's just very important to understanding the overall bird population and it's quite easy to do it it runs they have it where you count your birds from november through april so it's during the winter months which is really nice it's something you can do from your living room if you want to Mm. you know or your kitchen yeah and it's uh, simply a certain amount of time you count the birds that come to your feeder and you identify the birds Mm. and so it's the identification part that helps you learn about your own bird population. Sure. I mean, and it becomes a very meditative kind of thing to do. Mm. You actually are finding yourself getting really relaxed, and you may sit out there for a couple of hours and not even mm. realize that much time's gone by. Sure. But you're watching the interaction between the birds, mm-hmm. and you're just learning so much about bird behavior. That's mm. so interesting. It's also helped me see some of the birds that I've, I wanted to see, but I didn't have to go on a hike to do it. Mm. For example, um, this spring, I had always wanted to see a rose-breasted grosbeak. Suddenly, I had one at my feeder, huh. and it was just so exciting. Yeah. They were just, they only migrate, you know, through here mm. for a very short time, so it was pretty exciting. Fortunate to see it then. Yes. When you talk about the, I guess, nuts and bolts of participating in this project, what are like the intervals of reporting? Is it every day? Is it weekly? They have it set up so that you do it uh, two days in a row. 
you you choose the days you want to do, mm-hmm. and then you wait five days before you do it again. Okay. That doesn't mean you can't watch your birds, but <laughs> yes, you just yes. can't count them. And uh, they have certain rules on how you count them. On my list, I have cardinals, blue jays, downy woodpeckers. Well, then when I see uh, the first blue jay, that's my first bird. Now, I can't count him again hmm. until I see two blue jays and then i can add another one Hmm. so you don't want to count the same one so they make sure that you only count them as a group yeah so that's a safeguard so that you're not reporting 20 blue jays when the same one has come in and out (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) that makes sense i'd like to thank rita for joining us today and i'd like to thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoyed the podcast please follow or subscribe on spotify apple podcasts or wherever you are listening to this episode from while you're there I would appreciate it if you would leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. You can visit lookingatbirds.com for a transcript of the episode and pictures of the scissor-tailed flycatcher. Until next time, keep looking at birds.